heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to Season 5 of the Wine Crush Podcast. Stories uncorked for casual wine enthusiasts around the world, featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley. Sponsored by Country Financial. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody. Uh, I don't even know where to go with this, but we are back here with Wine Crush. We are series. Well, let's see. Season five, episode six. Good Lord, Andy Lytle, you have messed us all up with your shenanigans already. But welcome, everybody. Um, If you have been paying attention, you will hear that I have Andy Lytle back in the podcast studio again. Oh, no. I know, right? But we also have Wynn (laughs) Peterson Nedry with us as well. They were with us season four, and we've had to do a re-record because our computer ate the file. So we're so happy to be back, though. It just gives us more time to spend together. I've come back every week since, but they haven't invited me. We keep the doors <laughs> locked on a regular basis because of him. Lurkers outside the windows. Well, we've now introduced everybody <laughs> at the table. Um, but we're going to start with when, and we're going to start with our story, and we're going to start hearing about more about um, the serious part of wine, since we've been doing nothing but screwing around for the last half hour as we've been drinking this lovely Riesling that she brought. So, when yes, ma'am. welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. And just so everybody knows, we have left Andy's microphone on, so we have no idea what is going to come from <laughs> that man on that side of the table. So, Andy, I can this, kick him if we need. This is all about when this next 15 or 20 minutes. But, you know, nobody holds you to that. So. I'm practicing. <laughs> so, anyhow. Okay, when let's start from the beginning because you are a true second generation mm-hmm. um, wine maker, wine owner, lover, what all that entails. So I'm going to have you start from the beginning because you and your dad have been a team from really – Probably about day one, right? Yeah, more or less. Um, I was six months old when he and my mom bought our first piece of property up on the top of Ribbon Ridge. So that was more than three decades ago. (laughs) We don't need to age you. So it's been a long time. It's been a while. Um, And yeah, those were those ended up being the original plantings up on Ribbon Ridge AVA. Um, and so we've got some old vines still up there and we've got some younger vine stuff in, but, um, yeah, I've been kind of hanging around the property since day one that they've had it before grapes were even planted there. Well, I know we, we had talked originally several months ago about why Ribbon Ridge and mm-hmm. because it wasn't an AVA at that point in time. And it really, there was, was there any plantings on there Ribbon Ridge? no grapes there. No. Nope. So why did your dad and all of his genius decide to plant there? He grew up on a farm, so he had a little bit of an idea of, um, you know, growing things. Granted, it was a cattle farm in North Carolina, so it's a very different kind of farming than grape growing here. But he spent many years talking to pioneers here in Oregon and learning from them and asking about soil types and really geeking out. He's a very analytical guy, a very scientifically minded guy, so he could really dive deep into some of this grape growing stuff. And so he kind of had an idea of what he was looking for in soil and, you know, aspect of the land, whether it faced all the way south or a little southwest. That's what he was looking for. And good soil, but not too deep, not too vigorous, because grapevines like to be stressed a little bit. And then he just basically toured a few properties um, while he and my mom were looking for 
a piece of land and he found this place right on the top of Ribbon Ridge Road and it fit everything he was looking for. It had um, a beautiful, big open area. I don't think... I don't think there was much planted there at the time. It used to be an orchard, but it had since been removed before he got that land. And it was everything he was looking for, the right kind of soil, the right aspect, the right elevation. People thought it was a little too high at the time in elevation and a little too close to maybe the coast range, like it would be a little too cool to grow grapes back in the early 80s. But you know, everything's changing a little bit now, so maybe what was way too cool back then or even a little too cool back then is pretty perfect right now. So, Before we get too far down the road and away <laughs> from the originating story with your dad in it, your dad was just honored recently. So I think we just need to kind of maybe circle back on that and give oh, him sure. a little bit of, little bit of kudos because he deserves it. I think he deserves all the kudos as far as anything that's ever happened for our family. So um, he's the he's where everything started and yeah, he recently got the, what was it, the Leg Legacy Award? I don't remember exactly what the name of the award was, but it was from the Oregon Wine Board, and it was basically acknowledging all the work he's done for like the past decade in pushing through this Willamette Valley recognition that was made by the EU. So basically the European Union now recognizes the Willamette Valley as a place name, just like Napa Valley is. Napa Valley is the only other place in the U.S. that has a place name. And just like Burgundy and Champagne and, you know, Piedmont in Italy or any other great wine growing region of the world. Um, so, yeah, he he put in a lot of work into that and he finally got it pushed through last year. And then let's mention his name too, Harry Peterson Nedry. There we go. Yep. want to make sure and give him a look. That was a big deal. Like when that came down down the pipeline that that had been finally approved. That was a huge deal. Yeah, it was It was a lot of work. I remember him doing it for, yeah, probably the last 10 to 12 years or so. Um, and he was getting, right when COVID started, he was getting ready to go to Geneva to present in front of the EU, basically the final proposal for that recognition, which was pretty cool. He never actually ended up going to Geneva that's after a, COVID started. I know that's a pretty, pretty bummer, but... Um, but yeah, it got pushed through anyway, and um, everybody, I mean, the Willamette Valley deserves it. It's one of the foremost wine-growing regions in the U.S. and definitely, you know, up there for the whole world, so. Who would have thunk it? Yeah. This little valley in the middle of Podunk, Oregon would have these <laughs> great wines come out of it and these great personalities with, you know, they go with it. I so. mean, we knew there were great personalities. I think all three of us are from Oregon. So <laughs> if this One room is anything is to Tillamook. say. That, that is true. As Tillamookians, you know. You aren't from Tillamook. I am. I know. You are, but you are. <laughs> he's he's not. He's from somewhere. Grants Pass. It's I'm from Portland. It's kind of like Tillamook, but in the southern part of mm -hmm. Oregon. Logging town. It's worse. There's <laughs> no beach. At least in Tillamook, you have a beach. Yeah. We have the Rogue River. You do. Yes. You both have good cheese. That's true. <laughs> I've always liked my cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, good God. We've gone sideways and we've only Sorry. just started. It's all good. We expected this today. I would chime in, though, and say uh, that kudos to Harry because really everything that's gone on in the Willamette Valley in the last, you know, 30 years is really an attribute to the work that he had done there. I mean, to talk about sub-AVAs and the Willamette Valley mm -hmm. is all on his shoulders. And so we owe him a huge debt. That's pretty amazing. Thanks, Dad. Well, yeah, no kidding. 
Well, and thanks, Dad, for like introducing you to the the world of wine so early. I know. And, you know, it's with farmers' kids, with kids that grow up in, you know, in the family business or whatever. Some like shy away from it and run like the Dickens and others embrace it. And we talked about this and you kind of, you know, were part of it. And I know you enjoyed growing up there, but then you also kind of moved away from it. Mm-hmm. And now you're back and thriving. Yes. So um, I want to kind of come back to like your childhood and what you thought about the whole thing and, you know, how how maybe even that the the industry has changed and through your eyes, because you have seen so much change in such a short amount of time. Yeah. When I was a kid, I always, you know, the vineyard was a big playground. It was my stomping grounds. It was somewhere that we would go on a regular basis, but I didn't think a whole lot of it. I mean, it was something that made sense to me. I just thought that that was something that everybody, not everybody could grow up with, but I didn't think it was anything extremely special at the time, you know? I didn't think it was out of the ordinary, but you know, coming back to where I am now, I realize what a gift that was and how special it was to be part of my upbringing. I did leave town when I graduated from high school to try other things around the country and the world and, you know, get my bearings and make sure that everything that I'd come to love in Oregon was really what I was meant to be doing. And the more I spent outside of the area, the more I spent um, anywhere else, really, I realized how much Oregon was calling me home, you know? So I think that was a good thing to have experienced because it made me 100% more sure that this is where I wanted to be and this is what I wanted to be doing. So that was a great realization to have. Weren't you on the East Coast? Mm -hmm. Isn't that where you went for a while? Yeah, I went, I had, my college was right outside of Philadelphia, So I was there for four years, and then I got my first job out of college up in Syracuse, New York. So I was there for two more years, and then I came back to Portland for a couple of years, and then I went down to California for to go to Davis and get my master's in winemaking and grape growing, and then did some harvests around the world, and then came back to Oregon again. So you know, just a few things. Just just a few things. Just (laughs) I had the travel bug. I had the travel bug. It's, you know, but you can't fault that. I mean, I think when you travel and especially when you travel outside of the United States and, you know, I'm assuming that much of it was wine related, Mm then you just find a different way of looking at things and a different way of thinking than when you just stay in the same community forever. I think you have a better understanding of the global community and what other people go through and what other people are doing and, you know, appreciation for everybody out there. I, I, at least I do. I think that I have a much better understanding of the world as a whole. And I think it also helps to kind of hone in your style a little bit oh, yeah. as as a person, as a personality, as, you know, a winemaker, you know, whatever the case is. And so, yeah, I highly encourage everybody to travel. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. Is that where you found your love for Riesling? My love for Riesling was growing up with my dad. Harry is a big Riesling fan. It's his number one, pretty much, between Riesling and Pinot, of course, but yeah, when he used to go out to dinner, when he lived in Newburgh by himself once a week, and he would go to Tina's in Dundee, and he would sit up at the bar. They had Harry's chair at the end of the bar, and they had Harry's wine list. 
and it was almost entirely old Riesling. <laughs> so it was just like these one-offs that they had left that were really cool that they would be like, all right, Harry, this is for you. We're saving it. <laughs> he would just order off of that wine list. So. That's amazing. That's yeah. like a local cheers, but yeah. he doesn't have the norm or the Cliff yeah. Clavin to go with him, exactly. but he has his bottle of Riesling. Yeah. So dynamic duo, right? Yeah. Let's talk about a little bit of the grapes that you have growing up there because it's not just Riesling and it's not just Pinot. Right. There's a lot more that goes into it. Yeah. So, so we have two different labels, but they, they, everything that we make comes from the same vineyard. So that original vineyard, which is called Ridgecrest, that is where all of our fruit is grown. Ridgecrest on Ribbon Ridge. So we have the first thing we planted was Pinot Noir back in 1982. And then shortly thereafter, we planted some Gamay, Gamay Noir, um, which is another red variety that's typical of Burgundy and another one of our favorites. Um, it's kind of a cousin of Pinot, a little spicier, a little bit richer. And then we also had, after that, we put in Pinot Gris Riesling. We used to have a little bit of Chardonnay up there that we took out in 2007 or so, but we replanted some Chardonnay in the last couple of years, so we'll have that coming online. We have another white wine called Gruner Veltliner, which is originally an Austrian white. And then a couple of years ago, we planted some Chenin Blanc, which is one of my personal favorites, which is another high acid white. So as you can kind of start to understand, it's a lot of high acid reds and whites from either the Burgundy region or Germany, Austria area of Europe, or Chenin Blanc is, um, of course, pretty famous from the Loire region of France. So we kind of talked about the Chenin Blanc, you know, before Andy graced us with his presence <laughs> earlier today. And um, it's not something you see in the valley very often. No, nope. I think I've seen it down in kind of like the mid part of Oregon, down in Elkton. I think they have mm -hmm. some planted and are producing down there. So let's talk about that a little bit more because it's. It was interesting with the little bit of conversation that we had about it and that it's kind of this new and up and coming and kind of yeah. just this unique thing that is going to add to the kind of the list of whites that Oregon can do. Yep. I've always enjoyed it, but never found much of it in the Willamette Valley. I know there used to be some in the early mid 80s. I know a couple of kind of the old school producers had some planted, but it never really took off because... It was also much like Riesling, unfortunately, associated with really bad wines from the early 80s and maybe the late 70s, like jug wine that came out of California or wherever that was made very inexpensively and maybe not made extremely well. So um, sometimes those, those grapes that get a bad reputation have to go through kind of a lull before they come back. So much like Chardonnay after the Sideways movie, you have to kind of take- And Merlot. And Merlot. <laughs> you have to kind of take a step back for a few years before you venture back into being an advocate maybe. I don't know. Um, there's always great examples of any grape anywhere. So any grape that gets a bad rap is probably not justified across the board, but Chenin Blanc was one of those grapes. I think Chenin too, rap. if you think, you know, Loire really kind mm -hmm. of created it. But if you think South Africa and you think New Zealand, Shannon's doing really well there. Yeah. And yeah. and they they have a big, you know, uprising of some of their qualities come yep. up significantly. And I know a lot of people in the Willamette have planted it in the last 10 years or so. So I think it's going to see a resurgence here too. The other thing that we had chatted about before Andy got here <laughs> was uh, that 
the climate's also gotten a little bit warmer, which is a little bit more appropriate for things like Chenin, maybe Cab Franc. Even Gamay likes it a little bit warmer than Pinot does. So um, Gamay is thriving more these days than it was in the past. Um, things like that. Some old school clones of Chardonnay even. So it's a, it's interesting how a movie like Sideways, because I had never heard of it until I entered into the wine industry. And now I hear it all the time. And I've now, I watched it immediately after someone had mentioned to it, me, I don't know, five years ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, watched it. I'm like, half this Why shit did does, it, half this shit doesn't make any sense to me. Why did it I, make such an impact? Yeah. Yeah. And so I watched it again on the airplane to wherever I was going. And I'm like, oh, this all makes so much more sense to me now. But that movie destroyed, for a time being, a lot of different things and really changed the thinking on what people wanted to drink, what they thought they should drink, and what was good to drink. Yep. So I'm glad to see that, you know, Chardonnay, Merlot are coming back because I do like both of those. And when you were mentioning the the Chenin Blanc and the jug wines or whatever, I just kind of envision like the little, you know, yeah, the little handle, the you little handle ring that through. you stick your finger through that mm-hmm. people used to put gas in. Yeah. Yeah. This Wynn still has those in the fridge. I do. How else do you bring home wine from the winery? It's like an old time <laughs> growler. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. We'll bring in that back too. So that'll be like your next like thing to package stuff in yeah. is like old time, you know, gas jugs. Jugs. It's not just for cheap wine anymore. What was that? You carry it on your shoulder. You can't see it on the radio. No, we need to have a videotape in here, but we are working on that. So speaking of, we are going to take just a quick snippet of a breather because the glasses are empty and there is a Pinot sitting on the table that we all know is fabulous. And we need to uh, pour it in the glasses. That's the reason I came back. And me. Our personality. Maybe not. Glasses have been refilled. We have decided that this is good shit and it should have that label on the back of it with a with a good to really good uh, scale of some sort. Is that what we pretty much decided? Yeah, on Riesling, there's the IRF scale, which is the International Riesling Foundation scale. And it tells you from dry to sweet what the sugar perception is. And if you did that on the back of the Pinot, where like it was good to really good shit, then there could be like a scale, a sliding scale. This would be really good shit. Yes. Yes. I think we've had other adjectives to define this as well too, but (laughs) we've we've scaled it back just a little bit this time. But that's, it is so good. So I'm hoping that you guys at home have refilled your glasses with really good shit as well. I'm sure you don't have the RR 2018 reserve in front of you, but you should. So there we go. It's time to talk about wine. Did we miss anything on the vineyard part of it that we need to add before we move into the wine? I don't think so. We've kind of gone all over the place thanks to Mr. Mr. Lytle, Lytle down at the end of the table. He's like the circus ringleader a little bit. He really is. And I feel like I'm like, like a late night show and we have like a, you know, a ra- roundy round of conversations he's going one of those on. Clowns I'm a contributor. On stilts. <laughs> Something. <laughs> Okay, Wynn, this is all about you. (laughs) Let's talk about this wine because you make great wine. Thank you. Yes. Um, This is the pretty much the cream of the crop for what we make. So the Ribbon Ridge label, it's technically it's Ribbon Ridge Winery. So that's our full brand name. This one is called RR, just for short for Ribbon Ridge. The RR Pinot and then the RR Riesling. That's what we had earlier. Those two are 
our reserve tier wines. So reserve Pinot. So it's a barrel selection from all of the barrels of Pinot we make in a given year. And we select our favorite 350 to 500 cases worth, which is not a lot in the grand scheme of winemaking. 350 to 500 cases worth for this one blend. The Riesling is under 100 cases, and that's our favorite Riesling small barrel fermenters. So those are all stainless steel barrels, but small fermenters. So RR is the reserve tier, and then we do Ridgecrest brand also under that same label umbrella, and that is all of our state tier stuff. So all of it comes from the same fruit source. It's just a hierarchy of our taste selection. And then we do Pinot. Another Riesling, Gruner, Gamay, Shannon will be under the Ridgecrest label, things like that. Let's uh, let's focus back on this bottle of, well, both of these bottles right here, because sure. there's not big labels on the front. These are very simplistic bottles and labels that I love because it's a very minimalist way of approaching it. So it's about a quarter size label that says RR. The Riesling is bright blue. I don't even know what color blue that is. Tar right? Heel blue. Tar Heel blue? Oh, yeah. my oh, God. North, North Carolina? North Carolina. Tar my dad's a Tar Heel. Oh. oh I did okay, that, that color makes, for him. That makes a lot of sense. But yeah. this is the easiest bottle on the shelf to recognize. To <laughs> yes, it is because it is. there's not a lot of blue bottles, mm -hmm. um, at least in my wine closet. Correct. <laughs> so, anyhow. Um, and There I, were. What? You've just drank them. Yes, I have. This is actually – this is only my second go at the Riesling, so – um, that doesn't mean that I won't be calling a win later because Riesling is really one of my very favorites. Like, I enjoy a good Riesling. It gets such a bad rap. I think once people try a really good one, they get convinced. I think that most people think that Riesling is going to be syrupy sweet mm -hmm. and it's unbalanced. It's unbalanced. And it's, I don't know. It's, yeah, I hear it all the time because I, li I like Riesling and I order it a lot, you know, when we go out to eat or. or when we go out to for a glass of wine and people are like, why do you like that sweet stuff? And I'm like, it's, it's not. I mean, it can be. It can be. But what I like is more of a really nice, balanced, dry Riesling that really is expressive of the flavors and the terroir and everything. I don't think people take it seriously, but in Germany, it's their number one wine. Yeah. I mean, Riesling is their king there, and they make really good Riesling. And I think the reason that I've always loved it is I grew up on some really nice bottles. And if you go to a restaurant, the wine list it's one of probably the best values you can get. Even if it is a little bit more pricey for a white wine, the quality of what you can get on restaurant wine lists because Riesling is under the radar is amazing. Well, uh, 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to meet a guy named Hubert Trimbach. Yes. And in what Alsace. A name. Yeah. And he was a character, absolute character. But he educated me on Riesling and uh, Gewurztraminer. And just absolutely phenomenal. The petroleum, you know, kind of that taste, you just can't escape. But I think in the Pacific Northwest, you know, so much of the Riesling was made in Idaho during those times, and it was very sweet. Mm -hmm. So it just had that perception. But going back to what Wynn's saying, if you talk about really good quality Riesling, uh, stuff that they're making in Alsace or that they're making up on Ribbon Ridge now, the quality is just exceptional. Mm -hmm. It's pretty interesting to see. Um, there's several producers that are very serious about their Riesling, and it seems to grow more and more. And I don't have my finger on, you know, the pulse of the entire industry by any means, but the things that I see and things that I hear and whatever. And so 
it feels like Riesling has a little bit more of a validity than it did a few years ago, and mm -hmm. people are taking it a little bit more serious. I mean, with like this and, you know, Jess Pierce and Brooks, and I mean, there's several of them that are really focusing on Riesling and making it. I think it's just people hammering home over and over and talking about it and, you know, validating in tastings how great it is. You know, it's a it's a word of mouth thing. It's a consumer by consumer, person by person. You just have to get people to have that experience where they find one that they like. I know that my partner, Rob, had never had a Riesling that he liked until he met me. And now it's one of his favorites. And, you know, it's just- why he married you. <laughs> and that's why, yeah, it's a, it's a hand sell a lot of times, but it's, it's worth it if you, if you're interested into it. So what are your thoughts on Gruner then going forward? Because is it going to be the same fight with that? Gruner is typically not made in a sweet style very often. It can be. Um, there are definitely some Gruners that have some residual sugar on them, but not as commonly as Riesling. I think it's more of when I tell people what Gruner's like, if they've never had it before, I always say it's somewhere between like a Riesling and a Sauvignon Blanc because hmm. it's got that spiciness and it's got that herbaceousness that Sauvignon Blanc sometimes has. And it's related to Riesling, but all grapes have sugar when they start out, you know, before you start fermenting them. So any wine in theory could be sweet. That's what alcohol comes from is sugar. So. What do you pick a Gruner at what bricks? Um, it depends on the year, of course, but somewhere between 22 and 23 and a half. Same. I mean, it gets a little bit riper than Riesling and it doesn't have nearly as much acid, but texturally has a little bit more weight, maybe. So when we talk bricks, just for those that don't know what that is, because we have winemakers sitting at the table, it is a sugar level that as the grapes ripen, their bricks levels typically go up. And that's when you kind of decide when you're going to pick them. It's more or less correlated to about 10 grams of sugar per liter per brick, which means if I'm saying 200 and if I'm saying 23 bricks, that's about 230 grams of sugar per liter before it's been fermented, which is a lot of sugar. But that in turn relates to maybe a 13% alcohol wine. Got it. And I forget that, you know, that the sugar level and the alcohol level are all kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. They're pretty correlated. There's so much that goes into wine with chemistry and all of this stuff that it's just kind of mind blowing. Just you could go so geek with this stuff and into mm -hmm. so deep into the weeds with Brooks levels and chemistry and blah, 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 that um, it makes my head spin. And we that's why we don't talk about it much. That's why people go to school for winemaking. Exactly. Because it takes a full couple of years to understand a lot of, and nobody's ever going to understand everything that has to do with wine, but even just to get a basis of, you know, being somewhat knowledgeable about wine and winemaking, it takes two to four years. Yeah. And I mean, rightfully so, because there's so much to it. It's, I thought it was simple. I mean, I thought the whole wine thing was simple. I mean, you you grew it, you squished it, you threw it in the bottle, and voila, you know, but there's just so much. Those are children, not grapes. That you squish and put mm. in a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> or a genie. <What? laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's pivot to Pinot because that is kind of the king of, of king all of things. Yes. When we're talking about Pinot, Pinot can be all over the place. It can be mm -hmm. very elegant. It can be very earthy. It can be very... Bold. Jammy, bold, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. So what is your style with Pinot? What is it that you look for when you're making Pinot as far as like the grapes and what your vision is from year to year? I 
I really like to let the land speak for itself. And I'm sure that's something that like every small artisan winemaker says, you know, I get grapes from this vineyard because they express this and I get them from this vineyard because they express something different. There is a sense of place for me in all of the Ribbon Ridge wines that is something that I can't really explain other than it's what I grew up with, you know, having smelled and tasted and been around the grapes and the fermentation since as long as I can remember. The first times you taste wines in a lineup, I could tell you immediately which ones were Oregon Pinots probably and Ribbon Ridge at that. So the Ribbon Ridge wines for me have always been classic Oregon, but on a denser side. The tannin is a little bit richer and the fruit is a little bit darker than a lot of other places. I think that's common for the type of soil that's up there, which is marine sediment, which means it was originally old ocean floor before, you know, plate tectonics moved it from under the ocean. So this is all geeking out some the, more. The big glacier movement that came yep. through Oregon that rearranged everything. Yeah. The so, Missoula floods, right? Is that Missoula what it was? That, there that, we go. That's for um, the windblown silt soil. So that's okay. the loose soil. So we're on what's called the Ring of Fire, which goes from New Zealand up through Alaska, you know, Japan, Alaska, and down the West Coast. And so all of the ring of fire is basically two plates that are moving under one another. Okay. And so as those plates move, soil gets pushed up, and that's mainland Oregon and mainland California. So all of our coastline used to be underwater at some point, and as those plates moved, it pushed us above sea level. See, nobody has ever explained that. That's so, why the Willamette Valley is so fertile. Well, I knew that, but no one had ever explained that to me. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That's so anything that's marine sediment soil used to be on the bottom of the ocean. Okay. So I'm with you now. Eola Amity Hills, Ribbon Ridge, those are all X ocean floor. Cool. But I like, like the, it. But like Shehala Mountains and I don't know what else. Shehala Mountains used to be Missoula Flood, so that used to be up in... Montana. Got it. Okay. There we go. Yep. Geography lesson today, too. Yep. And then volcanic is pretty self-explanatory. Yep. And that's a little of the Olamity, too. So you yep. have the volcanic pushing from the east and the marine sediment pushing from the west and the plates push together and create the hills. And that's what creates, sometimes in the Eola, you can get on one side marine sediment, on the other side volcanic and all rock mm -hmm. on the same hill. And it's because the plates have pushed together like that. Yeah. Huh. You guys are so full of information. Okay, we need to figure out where to buy your wine now that we know all about the geography, the terroir, and everything else that goes with it. Um, how do we buy your wine? We sell at a number of um, local restaurants and retailers, but that list is too long to name. So I would also direct people to our website, which is ribbonridgewinery.com. And that has both brands. And how about Instagram and Facebook and all that good stuff? Are our wines... For both Instagram and Facebook. And then Ridgecrest has its own page too. So that's Ridgecrest Wines on both. Well, there we go. So we are going to, we're not even going to swap spots. No. We're going we're gonna to stay in the same spots, but we're But now I can heckle Andy. Exactly. It's, yes. it's, I wasn't it's, heckling. <laughs> he was adding um, valuable information Color to commentary. the conversation. There we go. Most of the time. Yes. But we are bringing in a new segment because of these two being here in July. And so 
we're going to prep for that, re-pour glasses, and uh, we'll be back with some snacks. Okay, I hope everybody has wine. We now have two glasses of wine. We have a red, which is the fantastic wine that Wynn brought. And now we have the Lytle Barnett Brute Sparkling. So because of these two yahoos and our original conversation back in July, um, Wynn had brought peanut butter cookies. And we had this really great discussion on what wine was going to go with this cookie. And we originally thought it was going to be the Riesling. And um, I think is what Wynn had thought. and but It ended it, up being the Brute, right? It was actually the Pinot. The Pinot was like totally knocked it out of the park. And so because of that, I've been trying to figure out how do I bring in everyday snacks that, because people don't want to drink red wine with anything but a steak or a fancy dinner or whatever, but it goes pretty freaking fantastic with a peanut butter cookie, apparently. It so did. from here on out, hopefully, if um, somebody keeps her organization straight, we're going to have a different snack in here every time to go with it and pair with a wine. So today we have a local and they're all going to be local. That's the idea anyways. This time we have Allie with the sweetest spoon. She has a bakery in Yamhill that she is, I believe, just starting. So please don't hurt me, Allie, if that's not right. But she brought in Marion Berry pie bars, a s'more brownie, and then a pecan cookie as well. And I just want to have like an open conversation about what we think between the Brute and with the Pinot, what is going better with what. So I think we need to start with the berry and try it and then go from there. Delicious, by the way. Oh, my mm. God. This is like a meal with itself. Good job, itself. Annie. Yeah, that Allie. delicious. Allie. Sorry, Allie. Jeez. Can't take him anywhere for so many reasons. You're not in front of me. I can't recognize your face. Mm. Okay, so when we did this last time, we were talking about the peanut butter cookie. Mm-hmm. I know that Wynn voted for the Brute, which I loved, and I voted for the Pinot Noir. And I just believe that with the beauty of these desserts, and we've just gone through one, but you can go either direction and beautifully because a Brute with its acid is going to be something that's going to be great and racy and it's going to chase through, you know, some of the, um, like th- this would be go- great with the Brute because of the, the Marionberry piece in there. But when it comes to Pinot Noir, I mean, you think about Pinot Noir and a piece of chocolate or a cookie or something like that. There's just this beautiful connection between the fruit and the chocolate or the or the actual cookie um, that makes it just taste that much better. It's berries and Pinot Noir are something that always go hand in hand to me. Like the Pinot Noir shows berries. Mm-hmm. And so they complement each other. Sometimes you want them to be kind of opposite. But in this case, since they're so similar, I think it works well, too. Yeah. And I mean, for my palate, like I like the Brute with it because it kind of cuts that sweet a little bit and kind of repulls the berry back out of it, where I thought the Pinot just kind of kind of almost like blended with it. Okay. On to the chocolate s'more brownie. Now, Pinot Noir. the Pinot with that is... Ble- heaven. Freaking amazing. And Allie, that is Perfectly cooked. I love yep. how it's still just kind of moist. It's a little yes. chewy. Yes, yeah. it has that yummy gooeyness mush- to it. The marshmallow makes it chewier. Yeah. Too. Some this- people might call that crack, but we call it Pinot Noir and uh, brownie. <laughs> you know, I've got to say, I know there's no popcorn on the table, but I had popcorn and Pinot the other day for a snack after work. Just, I don't know why it sounds like I'm such a lush. Um, it was so good. Wrapped in my blanket, watching a movie, eating popcorn and 
drinking Pinot. That sounds perfect. It was pretty fabulous. So anyhow, we don't have that today. It better so. have been Wins Pinot. But no, it was not. I don't have any Wins Pinot. Better have been Obain. I didn't even know Obain was even making Pinot. Oh so <laughs> last I knew it was still growing and it wasn't smushed in the bottles yet. Okay. On the pecan cookie. I'm going to go with the brute all the way on that. Something about the saltiness and the nuts, and then the acid of the brute. <laughs> Stop it, Andy. <laughs> There's a reason I like sparkling wine. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna do the pecan with the. I really like it with the brute. It's so good. I think that's the that's the winner. That should. That so I think the berry could go either way. I think the brownie goes with the pinot, and I think the chocolate chip pecan cookie goes with the brute. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I totally agree. And, you know, remember, the only thing that goes with sparkling wine better than this cookie is french fries or potato chips. So Or salty nuts. Anything salty. So um, I'm, I'm going to, yes, I'm going to hit the stride with the, the brute as well for mm-hmm. that one. Yep. Just, I think it is that saltiness. Because mm-hmm. there was a little bit of sea salt on top of the cookies yep. as well. So, Allie, you pretty much freaking Nailed knocked it. this one out of the park. So Nailed it. If you need anything as far as baked goods or yumminess, um, Sweetest Spoon is the one you need to find. I know she's on Instagram because I see her beautiful stuff being displayed on Instagram and bless her heart for bringing it in for us. So Thanks, Allie. You Thank make you, your Allie. wines taste better. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Okay, we're going to clean up this mess. And we're going to come back with Andy in just a second and talk all about not only Lytle Barnett, but Obane. We uh, usually start with bubbles around here, but we have held off on bubbles because, well, we didn't start with Andy this time. We started with Wynn. So our glasses are now bubbling with this lovely fizzy effervescence of um, some Lytle Barnett Brute that the lovely, ever-adventurous, not lacking any sort of colorful commentary at all, um, Andy Lytle has brought for us. So Andy, welcome back. We've already heard you several times (laughs) today, so it's not a secret that you're here. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I actually got a golf clap. You can't see that on the podcast, but I got a golf clap out of that. Yep. Well, good. Nice, nice work win. Yes. Mm. She actually adheres by the rules of the, you know, the show of not being loud and obnoxious. So. You don't know that yet. <laughs> we don't. It's know just that. beginning. We don't Depends know on that how yet. much Lytle Barnett brute I have. Mm. That's true. We've just barely crested the bottle. Mm-hmm. So, and I think there's two or three bottles um, out there. So this could get really out of hand really fast. Okay, Mister Andy Lytle. Barnett, which that is not your last name, but it just sounded really good. Yeah. Let's talk about your origin story, because we do know that you're from Grants Pass, because we added that in earlier today. So how did you go from the little podunk lumber town of Grants Pass with good cheese and the Rogue River to being a sparkling wine mogul of the Willamette Valley? Mogul's a big word. I wouldn't put it that way. I know, but I really like it. It, it sounded really good. It sounded good. good? Okay, yeah, good. it did sound good. Mogul is sometimes a bump you have to ski over to. It is. Oh, <laughs> see, I told you she wasn't going to behave. Um, so uh, we were originally in Southern Oregon. Um, our family was involved in timber for a number of generations, and we were down there. My mom's family had some timber holdings down there. My dad was managing them, and that's why we were in Southern Oregon. Uh, I think it's so funny if you just fast forward now 40 years the home I grew up on in this area of Grants Pass called the Jerome Prairie is now a bunch of vineyards. 
But, you know, back then it was too wet. You know, there's no way even down there in Southern Oregon, you could plant on some of those little valleys that we had. And it, it says a lot about what we've talked about even today about how it's warming up, you know, clearly, and it's coming from the South. And, you know, I think our friends in California recognize that. But it's so funny how I came from Grants Pass and now all of a sudden the Rogue Valley is doing so many beautiful things with, you know, with all kinds of different varietals of wine, really happy with what's happening down there. But I escaped the Southern Oregon after I went to college to University of Arizona. And then um, my career path was Gallo and then Coors. And then our family was a beer and wine distributor called it Mount Hood Beverage. And um, I came back after Coors. I was gone for about seven years working for Gallo and Coors and came back to the family business. And at by that point, we had moved back up to Portland and based the company out of Portland. That's how I got back here and ran that business till about 2008 when we merged it with Columbia Distributing. At that point, we took all of our family members out of the business, but we didn't want to, I was too young to retire, didn't really want to retire. I took a job with the Jackson family and based out of Santa Rosa. And so I was a division vice president for them for the West. And how I stumbled across becoming or being in the wine business here after all that time in 2012-ish, 2012-13, Barbara Banke had uh, come and bought a few pieces of property up here, the Zena Crown property down in Eola Amity, the Grand Marine property up in Yamhill Carlton, and a couple others. And I was giving a tour to a distributor on the Zena Crown property with a wonderful man named Ken Kupperman, who was the vineyard manager for the Jackson family. He said, you know, you really should buy a piece of property here in Oregon. And I said, well, I'm actually thinking about it, but I'm really looking at Walla Walla. And he goes, oh, you should buy here. And we kind of came around a corner at Zena Crown and we looked across the way and there was this beautiful home and it was just a hay field and an orchard. And I said, God, that's a beautiful piece of property. And he looked at me with kind of a wink. He goes, it's for sale. And I immediately said, shit. So I knew I had to do my due diligence. And Chris Figgins, a buddy of mine from Walla Walla, taught me a long time that A plus wine comes from A plus vineyard land. So I wanted to do the soil samples and look at the land and see what was happening. It all came back great. So that was 2013, very beginning of 2013. And so um, I was kind of thrown. You asked me, how did I get into the wine business here? Um, you know, it's kind of inevitable. I think it's, um, if, for me, it's a really cool experience that our family has been in timber now for uh, seven gener six generations. And, um, you know, we put Doug Fur in the ground. My great-grandfather put Doug Fur in the ground. And now we're putting vines in the ground. So there's a really cool connection I feel personally with growing grapes and growing vineyards and and having a really important touch with the land. In my time working with Jess Jackson, one of the things that he taught us, probably one of the reasons I fell back in love with the the wine growing aspect of the business is, you know, he always said that if you take care of the land, the land will take care of you. And I believe that wholeheartedly. And I think that that is a big piece uh, as to why when I kind of found this piece of property, I just kind of dove in and I recognized that that was going to be the next chapter of my life. And uh, that was 2013. And here we are enjoying a 2015 Lytle Barnett Brute. And the reality is we're coming into our 10th vintage this year in 2022, which absolutely blows my mind because I'm only 25. And it just doesn't seem like it could be possible. I'm kidding. I'm not 25. <laughs> Once you see the pictures, you'll understand. Maybe you'll that. notice my gray beard. Is that what gives it away? <laughs> I'm auditioning for Santa Claus. 
You've got a ways to go there, my friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, yeah, you're missing a few however, key the treat, pieces. However, Allie's treats that she gave us, I'm well on my way to uh, filling out the uh, costume. So thank you, Allie, for that. <laughs> yes. I'm sure she says you're welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about um, how you fell into sparkling, because there's one thing to fall into the wine industry and create a wine and buy grapes and you know own a label. There's another thing to go, hey, I'm going to make some high-class, world-class sparkling wine. I'm going to hire one of the most prolific sparkling winemakers in the Valley and call him my friend and buddy, and then find some guy in South Africa that is known for bubbles and bring him in as a as a business partner, too. And you kind of did all of that. You kind of, you know, went around the outside a little bit first instead of just making a still wine and then going sparkling. You started sparkling and now you're doing still wine. That's correct. So it, uh, it's a great story. You know, I think that everything that's happened to me so far in the Willamette Valley, you know, in, in the last 10 11 years has really been very serendipitous. Things have just fallen into place. And I think that's when you know that things are kind of meant to be and you're just following a path that might have already been written for you and you're just exercising, you know, that process. But when I was at the Jackson family, um, Barbara Benke was into thoroughbred horse racing. Our family had been involved in thoroughbred horse racing. And she had a friend named Anthony Beck who owns Graham Beck out of South Africa. And they were friends via thoroughbred horse racing in Lexington. And he had a small project here that Ken Wright was making called Angela, a small uh, project that he had for Pinot Noir, and now has expanded that into a new project called Abbott Claim. But when we were with Jackson family, he had asked Barbara, can Angela be sold through the Jackson family network? And because Barbara knew that I was based up here in the Pacific Northwest and I had a connection to thoroughbred horse racing, in 2011, she connected me at the Allison Inn where we launched Angela with Anthony Beck. And, you know, Peter Fierra is their bubbles maker, nicknamed Bubbles. You know, he's a wonderful guy in the new world for sparkling or Cap Classique that they do down there. He's the best. And um, so I had a conversation with Anthony and said, you know, you're making Pinot Noir up here. And um, we've always done great Pinot Noir, but Chardonnay has really kind of come into its own. You know, in my opinion, since about 2008 or nine, super high quality Chardonnay has really become consistent. And, you know, since that time, I think we've really seen, you know, the emergence of Chardonnay being a, you know, it's still second tier compared to Pinot Noir, but the reality is we're making some world-class Chardonnay here in the Willamette Valley. So I mentioned to Anthony, I said, you know, we're making great Chardonnay here. You know, you need to make sparkling wine here. And over the course of the next couple of months, you know, we had talked because of the Angela piece. And the reality was I just kept bugging him about it. And so he finally called me about six months later and he goes, you really think we should do sparkling wine here in Oregon? And I said, I think you're crazy if you don't. And he goes, okay, I'm going to do it. I said, that's a good decision. He goes, but you're going to partner with me 50-50. So that's how I got into the sparkling business before I got into the still wine business. Uh, I have a passion for sparkling wine. Anthony does too. And the reality is I think that the time was right. You know, if we put it in a time capsule and went back 10 years, I don't think we could have timed it any better. That's how the the whole project started. And I think I'll just mention now, you know, my partner's Anthony Beck and on the label is Lytle Barnett. Barnett is actually his mother's maiden name. So we didn't want to confuse Graham Beck out of South Africa. So we put his mother's maiden name on there. So Barnett is actually, it's a Beck, but it's his mother's maiden name. And that's how we got to Lytle Barnett. So smart. So, so sweet. Mm -hmm. But I do want to mention that Andrew Davis, who is known for sparkling wine in the Valley as well, is also your winemaker. 
So. That's a great story. So it was after Auntie and I met, we decided to make the sparkling wine. So then we had to go get a bubbles maker. And I was talking with Jessica Ensworth and I said, I go, who should I talk to? And she goes, there's only one person to talk to. And it's Andrew Davis. And at the time he had been at Argyle for a number of years, but this was the exact window of he had just left Argyle and he was just starting the Radiant Sparkling Company, which, you know, in my opinion, single-handedly has put sparkling wine on the map in Oregon because of what he's done for this industry here in the Valley, which is great. But in the window, he had just left Argyle. He was just starting Radiant. He was in between and we were his very first client. And as a result, I asked him to be the maker and he said, yes. So if I would have asked him just a month later, he would have said no because he would have already had too many clients and knew that what he had was going to take off. So again, there's a serendipity thing. Walking the vineyards with Ken Kupperman and seeing, you know, the Anahata piece across the way, which we ended up calling out the joy. And then, you know, Andrew Davis and finding him was just spectacular. And I'll just stick with that theme for just a second because you know, a lot of people don't know that Andrew Davis's wife is Isabel Monnier, who you know, one of the best winemakers in Oregon. And when Nice, it's nice. Funny that we're all it under the same was, She was literally like she, pulling the fish she, She's in Ribbon Ridge. But anyway, so what's great is, you know, so Andrew and I have been making wine for 10 years. And when we planted the Anahata Vineyard down at, at the Joy, you know, Andrew had a big say in that as it relates to what we were planting and how we were planting it. But Isabel was there too. And so she was part of the whole piece. So we knew that we were going to make a still wine together. We just didn't know when. And we wanted the vineyard to kind of, you know, mature and get to a certain place before we were going to do a single vineyard estate project that we now call Obane. But again, the serendipity of all of that all comes together. You know, being able to have Isabel making the still wine and Andrew making the bubbles. And then I'll throw one more piece on there on serendipity, and we'll just talk about it because we mentioned Obane. You know, it means windfall in French. And we have a new vineyard down in the Ill Amity Hills called Windfall, 117 acres, planted to 55 and we're now completely planted. It's a beautiful piece of property. But the only reason that I own that property and I was able to acquire it was because I already owned property in the valley. So if I didn't have At The Joy and the Anahata Vineyard, I don't think I would have had the opportunity to purchase Windfall. And you know that's our next and upcoming vineyard that we're very excited about. I have seen that vineyard. And so, yes, our friends live right in that general neighborhood. So I drive by it quite often. Um, I'm a big believer in serendipity and things happen for reasons. And whether you want to go real woo-woo with it or you want to just call it luck or whatever, I think what you're meant to do and what you're meant to be, if you are open to the signs and the signals of it, fall into place and doors open for you. And it turns into things that are really beautiful, lovely, and hopefully successful. I agree. Well, um, my glass is empty. And I have not had the Chardonnay from Obane. I also have Pinot sitting in front of me too. So there's so many choices right now, but let's pour the Chardonnay and then let's talk about all your other stuff that you've got going on because not only do you have the wine, but you also have stuff. So, okay, hold tight. We're going to pour some Chardonnay. Chardonnay is poured. Mm. The explanation has been given about what it is, why it is, and all the flavor stuff. And I'm going to make Andy say it again because he said it just very casually and still on mic, but, you know, it needs to be a little bit more Andy-ized. <laughs> so 
let's talk about Aubain and let's talk about the Chardonnay and then let's go into the the stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So um, so Aubain, which means windfall, is our single vineyard estate project from the Anahata Vineyard, and eventually we'll have an Aubain project from the Windfall Vineyard as well. So designed to specifically be a single vineyard estate project of Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And uh, we're tasting our Chardonnay today. It's 100% uh, Clone 76. And so I like to tell people to think Chablis when they taste it. It's very clean. It's got great characteristics. But at the same time, you know, if somebody likes a little bit of oak or butter in their particular Chardonnay, this might not be the Chardonnay for them, but it's the style that I love the most. What's exciting about this year, in fact, next week, we're going to bottle the 2020s and Clone 9.5. We're going to do a single bottling of the Clone 9.5 called Athos, which is the name of the block that the 9.5 comes from. And it's going to be a little bit more of a Chassagne Montreche or a Poyini Montreche type of a flavor profile. So works well, out perfect. Contraire, hold on, mon frere, right there, because I have <laughs> no idea what the hell you just said, other than it sounded very pretty. So what does that mean? He's that, speaking that French. Mont, mont, mont <laughs> something, rather. Yeah, so going back to our winemaker, Isabelle Monnier, right? Yes. Who's, you know, French-Canadian. So stylistically, from an Aubain perspective, we were really moving towards, like our Pinot Noirs are really a little bit, from a stylistic perspective, I like Jevy Chambertin, which is, again, it's going to be a burgundy, a red burgundy. And so stylistically, that's where we were looking to go. And then from a Chardonnay perspective, the 7.6 is more towards Chablis on a style, and then the 9.5 is looking more towards the- Do you need know, a translation? Pugini. She can go ahead and chime in. Chablis is more of like a stainless steel fermentation typically. So it's a little bit tighter, a little bit fresher. And then like Chassagne or Pouligny Montrachet is more rich and broad and fleshier and fatter wine. Thank you, Wynn, because he wasn't getting anywhere near those definitions with what he was talking about. <laughs> she did about. go to UC Davis. <laughs> yes, well. I went to University of Arizona. This, this is Where why they drank we... a lot of wine, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. It was in a bag in a box called a Bartles and James Wine Cooler, but it was the same. <laughs> or a silver can that had mountains on it, I'm sure. Keystone. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, um, yes. We'll go. Yes, I was going to... Yes. So anyhow, let's uh, let's move into... Can I chime in, though, a little Please. bit on the label? You can't see it because we're on the podcast. We will but, show pictures of it, though, on, but on I, social. But I would like to just say that w what's kind of fun, and, you know, Wynn talked about it with being up on Ribbon Ridge. You know, I think the thing that's important when you do a single vineyard project, like she's doing with RR and some of the things there, there has to be a sense of place. It has to be where did it come from and why is it different from something else? We really feel that the Eola Amity Hills, the Anahata, this one in particular, are really special as it relates to the label has two waves, a green wave on the bottom and a blue wave on the top. And the green wave represents the Eola Amity Hills and the blue wave represents the winds of the Van Duzer Corridor. You know, we've been talking that's starting to warm up and Eola Amity Hills used to be a really cool growing region and it still is as it relates to the North Willamette Valley. But the fact that we have this built-in air conditioner, so you have the grapes that can, you know, have these beautiful, long, warm days and these really cool nights so they can shut back down. So you get a longer growing period really creates a quality aspect in particular in Chardonnay that we're really happy that we're getting from down there. So, you know, the reason we did the label that we did is just specifically to be an homage to where we're from in the sense of place. 
and where it's growing. And I will say that you do do Pinot as well. We just don't have any Pinot on the table today. That's right. That's right. Yes. We had Wynn bring the Pinot today yeah. instead. That way we have a nice variety of things to choose from. We are from. wrestled and I won for yeah. Pinot. Well, I am not surprised by that, by the <laughs> way. I think she's our, scrappy. Our first release of Obain was 2019. So to be able to have some of her wines and some, you know, the age that they have on some of their vines is beautiful. Ours are a little bit different, you know, in flavor profile, not only because they're not in Ribbon Ridge and they're from Eola Amity, but they're a little bit younger as well. So the, the flavor characteristics are a little bit different. Not that one's better than the other or not, even though I really like wins. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, they're different. And it, it's good to be able to taste a Riesling and a sparkling wine and a Chardonnay and a really good reserve Pinot Noir from different areas. I think we'd make areas. a good team, Andy. Yeah, we'd be a good team. Be You'd be a handful. Especially if she made peanut butter cookies. Yes, which she did not this time, but that's no. okay. We had Allie's stuff instead, which was absolutely freaking delicious. Yeah. So, okay, the king of stuff, you have At The Joy, you have Sparklers, you have um, these really cool pool cabanas next to the pool. You have an automatic gate that I have the code to, unless you changed Ditto. it, which is rude. I'll meet you there. <laughs> yes, we're going we're gonna to grab floaties and, and hit the pool this summer. What else do you have going? And let's talk about some of these little stuff projects that I just uh, mentioned. Well, at the Joy, it, which is what you're referring to, it's, it's our, beautiful. It's our luxury by the way. Wine, wine country retreat down in the Old Amity Hills, and it it was funny when we bought the piece of property. I had no intention of buying a house, but the people that were selling the property weren't going to sell just the land; they wanted to sell the whole thing together. So I had recognized, and I kind of you know thought that. You know, from a hospitality standpoint, there really wasn't a lot going on, especially in the Old Amity Hills. And it was a destination and we needed to provide some of that opportunity for people. So we, we found this home. It was a beautiful home. It had been built in the early 80s, but the reality was it was a bit of a time capsule. So we gutted the entire thing and we remodeled it. And we realized we got done with this beautiful home, 5,300 square feet, pool, hot tub, but only three bedrooms. So it really didn't have enough, you know, for us to really kind of do some entertaining or do some some hospitality there. And so we decided to connect onto the house to the left-hand side of the pool. We built these bungalows and then we remodeled the downstairs of the house and we put a bedroom down there. So now we have 6,500 square feet, sits at 550 feet in the old Amity Hills, views in every direction. And it's really been a godsend because when you plant a vineyard, we planted the Anahata vineyard in 2015, it takes a few years before that kind of comes online and it starts producing and the revenue starts coming in. But Oregon has been a, a very hot commodity, in particular the Willamette Valley. And so we've been very lucky since starting in about 2014, kind of mid-2014, we've been you know, renting out this property and it seems to be fairly successful as it relates to people who want to be there. It's very difficult to get a reservation there in the summer. You know, so I think that takes it as a compliment, but it also was a, a beautiful plan in the business model that I did not anticipate because it was able to provide a revenue stream while the bubbles were, you know, we only do vintage with Lytle Barnett. So it's a minimum three year in the aging process. And so there's a, it's a five year wait in between you harvest and you, you actually have something to release. And then same thing with a vineyard, you know, so you're probably five years before you're putting something into a bottle that you'd want to have represented like Obain. So that waiting period, you know, instead of a lot of cash out, even though it was, creates the opportunity for a revenue stream without the joy. Well, cash in. Yeah. And it is a beautiful spot. Great for, I would say, families, corporate meeting places, because there's 
it's just, it's really beautiful. So anyhow, big plug for that. So if you're looking for a place, at the joy is the place. At the joy.com. Yes. Let's talk about sparklers really fast yeah. before I ask my million dollar question at the end. Okay. Since you're both on mics. It's yeah. even better. I love so. it. It's even better. Okay. Let's talk about sparklers fast. Yeah. So it was kind of fun. It was, uh, you know, we were going through the COVID situation and it, so it was the end of 2020 and we were going to expand our distribution into California. And we made a decision to, you know, kind of find some of the best sommeliers down in California, send them a bottle of Lytle Barnett. And I sent them a handwritten note that just said, it's been a tough year for all of us. We look forward to doing business with you next year. Enjoy this bottle of Lytle Barnett Brut, and we'll talk to you next year. And everybody was very appreciative. Everybody came back to us. One person in particular, a guy named Matt Kaner, called me and said, be by your phone in 10 minutes. I'm like, okay. So I was by my phone in 10 minutes, and he called me back with a guy named Jason Wise. And Jason was the guy that created all of the Psalm movies and then had since created the new Psalm TV streaming platform. And he said, we have this idea that we want to really kind of do a food and wine pairing competition with sparkling wine. We have three wines from France. We have two wines from Italy. We want a domestic sparkler. We really don't want to do California. We know that Oregon's pretty hot and we've heard about you. And Matt Kaner called me and said, he just tried your wine and said it was spectacular. So would you be willing to do it? Well, that didn't take much for me to say yes to. And what's really exciting about that is, so they actually came out and they actually filmed a 13-episode Psalm TV program called Sparklers, where it's um, sommeliers kind of doing a food and wine pairing competition against themselves, judging themselves. But what was great is they came out and they filmed eight of the 13 episodes at At The Joy. So it really showcased the Willamette Valley. I'm a big believer in the rising tides raises all the boats. And it, I think it was a great showcase uh, for the Willamette Valley having it done there. The first two episodes were of Lytle Barnett specifically, and then it was also mentioned in the finale. So I think you know, getting the word out there, the name out there of what we're doing here in the Willamette Valley just you know helps everybody. And so really excited about what's happened. So now that aired from the November until the beginning of February, specifically on Psalm TV, but now it's on every streaming platform. And what's cool is the sommeliers that were there can now be on podcasts and different kind of interviews and talk about the interaction and the whole piece because it's now been aired. So it's been very exciting to be able to be part of that and feel like it's created you know, some momentum for Oregon Sparkling Wine. That's cool. Okay. That's awesome. It is really awesome. And I need to actually find it and watch it now. Yeah, so, I do. Yep. Um, oh, you haven't watched? No, because it was a secret. And I, mm -hmm. it's a secret. So anyhow, I'll watch it now. I've just been dreaming about the swimming pool at, at the Joy. And so I, can, I have great floaties. I can watch this this television program and You put on a jumbo screen like at there. the end. Okay. You're perfect. We'll send you the bill. <laughs> <laughs> Where do we find you? Social media, email, website, those kind of things. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, social media is just Lytle Barnett for Instagram and for Facebook. We're uh, lytle-barnett.com for our website. You know, we're represented in, you know, four or five states via our distributor, Southern Wine Spirits. But the reality is, you know, you can buy us online via our website, lytle-barnett.com and obainwine.com. You can purchase our products through there. And at thejoy.com if you want to come stay with us. There we go. We'll be doing all of those things. <laughs> when you can't and I get rid of me, Andy. Yes. When and I are going to have a conversation later <laughs> and we're going to make our master plan. Yeah. Okay. Last question of the day. 
you get to take one of your wines to meet one of your favorite celebrities, dead or alive, to hang out with for the day and have a snack. What's the wine? What's the snack? And who are you hanging out with? I've got my answer. Okay, I we'll think go Annie for needs it. to go first then. I'm going to take Lytle Barnett Brut. I'm going to be hanging out with Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters, and we're going to be eating fried chicken. Ooh, I like all of those things. <laughs> Will you invite me, please? Yes. Okay. Okay, Win. I don't even know how to compete with that. Be yourself, Win. Oh. I'm you can gonna... invite me. He doesn't count. No. Oh. He's not a celebrity. <laughs> I'm gonna take. Mm, I'm gonna take the RR Riesling, and I'm gonna go hang out with David Bowie, and we're gonna have some sushi. There we go. I like both of those answers. Mm -hmm. David Bowie would be so interesting. I know, and I bet he'd really like Riesling and sushi. I bet. Being I think in, those are yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. you too. It's been real. As always. Thanks again, Heidi. <laughs> and it was nice to see you again. <laughs> well, it's nice to see you too as well. And it gets a little bit wilder every time I see the both of you. Thank so, you for having us. Yeah. So good anyhow, to see you when. Good to see you, Andy. It's time to go get some wine, Woo. eat some food, and we'll see you all later. Cheers. That could have been three hours long, but yeah, it was, it was long. You can't hear that, but I'm glaring at him. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, that cookie, I can still taste it. Like the salt. All of it. I got chocolate, and I got the cookie, and I got the pecan. It's like all over my mouth. And that's what I... Are we still <laughs> recording? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had to cut a curling iron out of my sister's hair that I got stuck. A curling iron? Yeah, like one of the brush ones, you know? Like, she was three, and I was five, and my parents were... And you had not scissors. paying attention. <laughs> well, they were milking, so they were in. I thought I would was doing her a favor by curling her hair, because my hair was curly, hers was not. It's very blonde and very straight. And I decided to give Angela a hairdo, and got the brush curling iron stuck in her hair. And instead of just unplugging it, and then taking her and the curling iron to the barn for my parents to unwind her, I took the scissors and just cut it out. So, while it was plugged in. While it was plugged Even in. Even better. Yes. Scissors, <laughs> so, a sharp deal, and, a, and an outlet. I Yeah. My mom took us both to Sunday school on Sunday and showed everybody what I had done to my sister. And it was great. And it was apparently still scarred me. Mm.